Hello and welcome to Sunday Night Conversations brought to you by D1Baseball.com. I am your host, Michael Patrick Rooney. I want to say a special thank you to our presenting sponsor, Netting Pros. Netting Pros specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting and padding for college baseball programs all around the country. Next time your field or facility needs something new, whether that be netting, wall padding, L screens, or ball carts, make sure you check out our friends at Netting Pros. These guys are amazing. You will thank me later. You will absolutely thank me later if you call Netting Pros. It will be the best decision you made. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Sunday Night Convos. This has been super fun. For the uninitiated, this is really version 2.0 of what we did last year with the fourth coach conversations. This year, instead of speaking only to volunteers, we've we've expanded it to any assistant coaches, and we've, we've been more topic-driven. So tonight, we're going to do infield play. We've got a really good panel tonight, which is fun. And so let's get into it. Let, let's What I'm going to have you guys do, and Coach Kribbe, I'm going to start with you, and we'll go around the horn. Let's, let's intro ourselves. So give me your name, where you're from, where you played, where you've coached. Just kind of bullet point me around your resume. Coach Kribbe, go ahead. Yeah, Eddie Kribbe from Seattle, Washington. Started out kind of coming up through the summer ball scene. That's how I got my intro into collegiate coaching. I was part of a competitive summer ball team out of Washington called the Washington A's, led by Kyle Larson. He brought me on. He was a big lefty bat for the University of Washington, drafted by the Yankees, and just kind of known his name in the area for a long time. And he brought me on board to the A's, as well as a powerhouse athletic high school called Eastside Catholic. Made me the head coach of their 18U premier team and uh, the pitching coach at Eastside Catholic High School for the varsity squad. From there, that's, that 18U team that I had was just a, a very well-rounded club. They're all either playing college baseball right now or they're still committed, about to go play. And I say those kids really put me on the map. And it was a phenomenal relationship. And and their success was literally my success. And through the process of getting them placed to call it, being on the other end of it now, it's kind of funny, but I would call schools for them that I felt were appropriate. We felt were appropriate. And it was a relationship building. Hey, here, here's why you should believe me on this kid. And here's why you should take him. And now I'm on the other end of it. So it's kind of cool in that regard. But long story short, there was a center fielder that I coached since he was 12. And it was time to get him placed. And he's he plays it. University of Puget Sound and Academic D3 in Tacoma, Washington. And so through the process of getting him placed, as well as others, we had kids at Yale and Colby College, San Francisco, and a bunch of JCs. But the Puget Sound one was special because that led to my first job offer. And I was there for a year as a volley working with the outfielders under Jeff Halstead. Very appreciative of him for taking me on. From Puget Sound, that led to a job in the Northwoods. Uh, Justin Musil, who's in the front office with the Brewers, he's been a, a huge advocate of getting me to where I am. He connected me with the, the head coach there, who was Paul Widener, who was the volley at Creighton at the time. Spent a summer in the Northwoods, and ultimately that led me to Fordham after that. Halfway through the fall, I came over to Fordham, and under Coach Layton, Pat Porter, and Glenn, had a year there as an assistant coach, primarily with the infielders as well. And that got me to, to where I am now at St. Peter's. And that was kind of an interesting story. Really had every intention of going back to Fordham. The end of summer was coming. I was at one last camp, ready to rock and, and starting to line things up back at being a Ram. And Robbie McClendon, the head coach at NGIT, was at the camp with me on Long Island. And I don't know, we just got to talking. And he's like, hey, man, I've kind of noticed you at this camp. You've done well and you're engaged and you're into it. What's your deal and what are you looking for? And I was like, hey, I'm going back to Fordham. Everything's great there. And he goes, hey, I got a, a close friend of mine, Grant Neary. He's a new head coach at St. Peter's, and he's looking for a new staff. If you're interested, let me know. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll take the phone call. I'd be dumb not to and see what he has to say. And fast forward, loved what he had to say and a part of something special with the Peacock. Associate head coach at St. Peter's and still working with the infielders. Oh, that's awesome. Crib, every time I hear your story, I think of – the my first year at ASU, I was doing summer placement, and yeah. I'm calling summer coaches, and I'm the volunteer at the time, and I'm also saying, hey, and by the way, I'd like to coach somewhere this summer. So if you hear anything, and that's how I ended up in Alaska for a summer, which to several of us. Hey, let me ask you this follow up, Crib. The your your dad played at Washington, and your brother played at Washington, right? Yes. Was your dad a pitcher too, or what position was your dad? Oh no, he was a pitcher. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it was. <laughs> 
he was give me the ball and there's a story with with kind of goes to how he how he ended his playing career but it was in so many a pitching change was attempted and he had some choice words of not wanting to come out of the game and of course he ended up coming out of the game but he was a bulldog on that mound and both my brother and I definitely get that from him so that's awesome hey one more question then we'll keep going any are there any similarities at all between New Jersey, New York City, and the Pacific Northwest? Or are they completely different planets, or is there anything they have in common? I tell people I haven't missed home once, and I actually think it's very similar, to be honest, Mike. And I just say the only difference is it's just on a much grander scale. The, we have the city of Seattle. Obviously, Jersey City's a little bigger. New York City's a lot bigger. We'll get some snow in Seattle, just more snow in New Jersey and in this area in the Northeast. We'll get the slow, steady rain in the Northwest. It will absolutely pour here and then be over with. We still get four seasons like we do over here, but I tell people it's similar, but just on a more grander scale for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Two great parts of the country for sure. I love it. So, I love yeah. it. Like I said, I haven't missed home once and don't plan on going home anytime soon. That's great. Very cool. All right, Winnie, go for it. Name and background, please. Yeah, Sean Winston. I'm with Gonzaga University going into my eighth year. I've been doing infield with these guys for the whole time. I started my career with Paradise Valley Community College down in Phoenix. Junior college worked for Victor Solis and then uh, took a job with Abilene Christian University with Britt Bonneau, I think 2013-14 and then hopped on with the with the Zags the first year 2016 and yeah, just really have found myself kind of getting settled here in Spokane and and working with these guys and excited in, in terms of the group that we have going forward. That's awesome. All right, so Winnie, a couple follow-up questions. So I didn't realize you worked for Britt Bonneau at ACU. That is amazing. That must have been really cool to see them in the CWS finals last year because he's at Oklahoma now for the listeners. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. I was in the transition from the Abilene. Abilene was transitioning from division two to division one, 2013 and 14, I think. So yeah, no, Britt was, Britt was great to work under and I learned a lot. And then it was obviously really, really cool to see him on the final stage there at the end last year. Yeah. And so when you were at Paradise Valley, you worked for one of the great people in our sport, Victor Solis, who was an assistant coach at University of Arizona. He's been at Paradise Valley Community College forever. This Vic Solis is amazing. So did he, he was an infield guy at U of A, if I'm not mistaken. Did he work with the infielders at PV or did you guys split it or how did you guys do that? Yeah, absolutely. No, he is. I think he's one of the best infield guys in the country. Yeah. If I, if I had to say it, um, yeah, no, he, so that's kind of where I started and, I played middle infield, obviously, but in terms of teaching infielders, Vic taught me a, a ton. He he threw me in the outfield right away to nice to uh, start coaching and this and that. And then yeah, no, obviously he brought me in and kind of let me work with the guys there. And yeah, no, I got I got nothing but great things to say, obviously, about Vic. And he's kind of he's the the pillar, I guess, to the infield coaching that that I've started. All right, so final one, Winnie. The uh, if I'm if I'm reading your resume correct, correctly, you played in Hawaii for a couple of years. The Hawaii Pacific Sea Warriors, by the way, great mascot. You also coached in Alaska. If you could only go back to one of the two places, where would you go? Hmm. I'm going to Hawaii. I'm going go, <laughs> going to Oahu and to Honolulu for sure. But yeah, no, I I enjoyed both both those spots. One obviously as a player, and then. Alaska as a coach was was great. I got to work with a lot of really good players there with Matt Matt Sue and really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's back when Matt Sue was a dynasty. You and Coach Taylor and all those guys. That was you guys were on a run there. So very cool. Coach Decker, go ahead. Name, background, go for it. Sure, Kyle Decker. I grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut. Played at two different Division three schools. I started out at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and then transferred to Oberlin College, a uh, small liberal arts school in, in Ohio. Got my start in coaching uh, at the summer ball level in the Futures Collegiate Baseball League with the Torrington Titans, and then also coaching the uh, NECBL. And then my first year in, in college ball was as a volunteer assistant at UMass Amherst. And then after one year, one year there, I spent two plus years at Harvard University, and then got hired here at at University of Dayton in November 2020. I think I'm the youngest one out of the guys, but thank you for having me on here, Ruins. It's an awesome experience. 
Yeah, no, really cool. So, Deck, let me ask a couple follow-up questions. Do I did I read this right that you played at the end of your playing career? You spent some time in Australia and Belgium. Yeah, I, I did. I wasn't done playing yet. Still had that itch and playing college baseball. And in college, you don't really get to study abroad or do anything like that. So it was a way to see the world a little bit and keep on playing along the way. A fun experience. I met some really good people and got to play for an extra year. Hang on a little bit. What, how would you, so I've got World Cup fever deck. I'm, I'm not a soccer guy, but I'm trying like crazy. Like for the next 29 days, I've been studying, listening to podcasts. The Belgium Red Devils, Kevin De Bruyne. What do you got on Belgium soccer? Talk, talk. Can they? Do <laughs> I don't it? have. I don't have. I don't have much. I did go to when I was over there. The the Euro Cup was going on, so I, I did go to a couple a couple matches with my teammates, and uh, it's something else. They're they're pretty electric, and it's it's kind of just one constant party going on in in the, in the stands. But uh, they they love their Red Devils over there in Belgium, and the Euro was was really big when I was over there. Love it. Hey, one one more for you, Deck. Tell tell me about Harvard. Like that seems like the recruiting part of Harvard seems like there's 25 kids on the planet that you could recruit. I know that I'm exaggerating, but like the the bar academically is so high, and then you've got the Yales and the Princetons and all those types of schools. It is the recruiting process must be just wild. It's definitely different, at least in comparison to, I can only speak for, for us here at UD, but I like to say that baseball tends, tends to be a smart man's game. So there's a lot of smart kids out there that are also pretty, pretty darn good at baseball. So yes, it, you have to have, obviously you have to have the, the grades to get in there, but there's a lot of good players out there that are also excel a lot in the classroom. It's a different landscape compared to what I imagine most Division One schools. I and mean, I wasn't, Brian Stark was our recruiting coordinator, was our, is the recruiting co- coordinator and associate head coach there and does a phenomenal job and he's, he's something else over there. So they, they've got a role pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. And by the way, my sister is a UD flyer, so she's, she had an awesome experience at Dayton. So that's a really cool school. Love it. Gilly, go ahead. Yeah, my name is Anthony Gillich. I'm the, the head baseball coach at Central Arizona College. Played in, in grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So some of the some of the places that Crib and Winnie already spoke about. I grew up in Gig Harbor, but went to Tacoma Community College for one year. Um, then played in in uh, Santa Barbara for a year before an injury got me. It didn't didn't rob me of a of a professional career or anything like that. I wasn't good enough to do that, but probably robbed me of my last two years. And and but that's kind of what led me into coaching. I, I never really thought, never had an inkling to to think I was going to coach. I thought I wanted to teach, be a teacher. I guess I am in a sense. And and uh, as part of my degree, I had to do an internship at Ellensburg High School when I was getting my degree and, and I was the JV head coach there and, and I fell in love with it. And so when I graduated, I figured I got to figure out how to do this for a living and, and other people can do it. And so I just started calling people and and I had no idea what I was doing and didn't really have a mentor or anything like that. And, and um, started at the top, started with Ken Knutson at University of Washington and said, hey, Snake, I want a job. And he said, no. And I, I said, hey, I'll, I'll do it for free. And he said, no. And so it was, uh, so that it, was a, it was a rude awakening. I was like, man, this is going to be a little harder than I thought. Unfortunately, I got a, got a job at University of Puget Sound, same place that, that Crib was. And I was there for four years. Uh, Brian Billings hired me there. Jeff Halstead was actually on staff there. We were both assistant coaches. He's the head coach now at University of Puget Sound, but forever, forever thankful for Brian Billings just to give me an opportunity to, to coach and work with people and and learn and make mistakes and and uh, still kind of ride with me a little bit. And so I had the opportunity opportunity to do that. I did that for four years. I coached the summer summer team as well during that time. And and we'd send a lot of guys to to Central Arizona. I had a relationship with the with the last head coach John Wenty. And so we'd send him a couple guys and and he had an opening and and it, it kind of came full circle because we said, Hey, you want a job? I said, Yeah. And I said, How, how much? And he said, Free. And I said, I'll take it. And so it was, like I said, it, it, was, it was more about the opportunity for me. And, and so I was an assistant for John Wenty for, for seven years. And then this is my, I'm going into my ninth year as the head coach. It's my 16th year at, at Central. Love it. All right. So Gilly, so you guys are on this central is a very good program. It's been a good program the whole time you've been there. There's great history there, but the last several years have been a historic run. So 2020, you got to throw out, there was no, no world series for junior college. There was no world series for anybody. You guys have been to the, the NJCAA national championship game, three consecutive years. You guys won it in 2019 you lost in the final in 2021. You won it last year in 2022. Normally, I'd be asking a coach like, hey, what's it like to win a national championship? I guess my question is, what's it like to play in the championship game three years in a row and it's up, down, up like that? This 
So I'm just curious, like how those three events have changed or do they feel very similar or they look, they feel very, very different? It's, it's extremely hard. Each one's extremely hard. So it's not, oh man, it's, it's getting easier. No, it's, it's getting harder. Really. It's you get, you get some teams gunning for you and those kind of things and, and they, they, they want to beat you. Right. And we're forced to kind of bring our A game at, at all times. And so I, that, that's why I'm like, as this goes on, I'm, I'm proud of the guys and our, our conference is, is unbelievable. It's, it's, when he was in it at Paradise Valley and just from top to bottom, we were lucky enough to win a national championship last year and, and we lost to Eastern Arizona who finished last in the league last year. And so to the point is they have a great program too. And, and I don't think that happens in a lot of conferences, but they're well coached and just top to bottom, you have to, if you, if you play a bad game, you, you lose, you get beat. And, and I think that's what prepares our conference so well for when we, if, whoever makes it to the national tournament, kind of battle tested a little bit. And yeah, I've been proud of the run, but I make no mistake. This, this program has been, been good long before I ever got here. Yeah. In, in the three runs to the last three title games, what's the, during the playoffs, what's the biggest comeback? Do, do, have you had, had, had any crazy comebacks? Yeah, the first one in, in 2019, we were losing 7 nothing after the top of the first. In, in the, the championship game. Championship game, yeah. I've never been down 7 nothing in the first inning in any game, and here we are in the national championship game. We haven't even hit yet. Um, we're losing seven nothing, and I, I actually told our our assistant coach, uh, Coach Perez, who was running the third base box. I said, "Man, we just play for one, like somehow get some piece of the momentum back. Just like we need it. We have a long way to go, and and we were lucky enough we scored four in the bottom half, and it it almost felt like we were winning, right? Yeah, even though yeah. we were still down, but it just we kind of grabbed that momentum back, and so it's fun. But yeah, that was that was a wild one for sure. That was against Iowa Western. They had a great program, and Mark Reardon, and and he does a heck of a job, and so we were we we're lucky to come out on top on that one. Well, that's awesome. Very cool. All right, boys, let's let's uh, let's keep up and around here. So, Crib, easy one to start. I'll give my answer too. Your favorite. We're talking about infield play tonight. Your favorite major league infielder, current, past, growing up. I'm going to start with Ozzie Smith. I went to the All Star Game in Philadelphia in the late '90s, but I didn't go to the All Star Game. I went to the day before for BP and the Home Run Derby. And watching BP before the Home Run Derby was way better than the Home Run Derby. Ozzie Smith was taking fungos, and he was turning two. And I'm not kidding. He never looked at second base, and every throw was just dotting the glove. He, he was that good. He could just throw it right into the mitt without looking at his pivot partner at second base. So I'm going to go Ozzie Smith for a million different reasons, but that is a memory that I'll never forget. Crib, you kick us off. Favorite MLB infielder? I got to go with the, the best fielding shortstop of all time. Most probably think Derek Jeter, but Omar Vizquel, drafted by the Seattle Mariners. Obviously a Seattle guy myself. I was a little too young at that time to really understand what he was, but Obviously, once he went to Cleveland, he kind of made a name for himself. And to field 985 in a career over 24 MLB seasons, I just I don't think that'll ever be broken. So I'm definitely yeah. going uh, going with Omar. Gosh, I forgot he was a Mariner. I, 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 in fairness, I think of him as an in, as an, in a Cleveland uniform. Oh. But that's right, drafted by the or, or started with the Mariners. I that's think cool. it was like tw like almost 23,000 innings mm -hmm. in his playing career. And uh, to have a 985 to finish is, yeah, it's unbroken. Yeah, like he's making a very hard position look easy. That's what he did right. for his entire career. Yeah. Yep. Winnie, go ahead. Favorite big league shortstop? Or infielder, I should say. Sorry. Yeah, I guess, I guess shortstop, I probably a pretty easy answer was Andrelton Simmons. Oh. Just in, in terms of watching the way that he plays, I got I got to – Luckily, be a guest to the World Baseball Classic Netherlands team in, I think it's 2013, when he, him and Bogarts and those guys were coming up. Yeah, I think Andleton's probably at the top of my list. If I had to dig back and just in terms of somebody that growing up that I looked at, non-shortstop would be Biggio, uh, would be the, the top guy that in terms of how he played and, and went about it, so. That's awesome. Andrelton Simmons was like an upgraded Shawan Dunstan. But in, in fairness to Shawan Dunstan, like he probably was way better than I imagined. But when I was a kid, Dunstan was coming up. And I just remember him throwing these laser beams across the infield that would end up in the stands on occasion. Whereas Simmons was throwing laser beams, but I felt like it was a very accurate thrower. So I need to, I need to, in fairness to Shawan Dunstan, I got to go back and check that out. But that Simmons is a great, great call. Very cool. Yeah. Deck, go ahead. 
I got two, if that's all right. Please, yeah. I grew up a Nomar fan, so uh, Nomar Garcia Parra with the Red Sox. Grew up watching him, obviously, and was pretty heartbroken when they uh, traded him away to the Cubs. And then a big fan of Jeremy Pena. Was fortunate enough to coach Jeremy one summer. Oh, he's nice. my he's he's my current he's my current guy. But so Nomar and Jeremy. Jeremy Pena. What after what year in college was he? So I'm assuming it was when he was playing at Maine. It was actually before Maine in the in the Futures League. High school players could play after they you know, ah. graduated high school. So Jeremy joined us about about halfway through the season, and he could still pick it back in the day. And it's pretty easy decision putting him at a shortstop as soon as he showed as soon as he showed up. So, what Especially. when you had him, Deck was he was his defense ahead of his offense, or what? Where, like kind of where was he in his player development? Yeah, so he he was a lot skinnier than he is now. The, the glove was was very advanced for a kid just finishing up high school and the bat but the bat showed flashes but he hadn't seen that sort of pitch and just being a high school kid in providence and stepping up for some bigger competition but you could see the makings of of it and a quiet kid just went about his business the right way and you you can you knew he was going to be something special yeah was he like super athletic back then or was it because if he's I don't know. It's funny. Like sometimes as kids get stronger, I, I think of, I always think of Pedroia. Pedroia was a terrible runner in college, terrible. And he would steal like 20 bags every year in the big leagues, which makes no sense. But it's because Pedroia was so weak as a college player. He's 135 pounds. He, he just wasn't strong enough to run well. Was Pena still really athletic or was that, that kind of came on as he got stronger? I would say it's a mix of both. Like he was, he was still athletic, advanced athleticism. He definitely, the, think for him transforming his body when he got to college and then since there he took it to another level yeah. i don't think he was like a pedroia level in terms of that development or not being as athletic but uh, yeah he was definitely very athletic but that only got better as he got bigger and stronger yeah now he looks like you put him in an nfl game he is <laughs> yeah that's a good looking athlete love that that's really cool gilly go ahead yeah, I would say uh, I would have Omar on my list too. Growing up in Seattle, he, he was our, yeah. our shortstop. But the pivot, just to not, not to say the same guy, I, I would have to go with Arenado right now. The guy's, the guy's incredible, right? I mean, he just to watch his glove work and, and his arm strength and I don't know, just his ability to use his feet to get the hops that he wants and those kind of things is, is pretty incredible. You know, and then he has freakish hands that when he doesn't get the hop he wants just to, to make those plays. And in our program, we talk about zero hop a lot. And what a zero hop is, is what most people refer to as a short hop. But in my mind, a short hop is a, is a bad thing, right? And so we try to get the zero hop, just to hop right in front of your glove. And, and Arenado, that guy, that guy's a, a machine. And the way he can move his feet and get the zero hop, that hop that's not going anywhere but in your glove. And then just the, the ability to watch him throw and, and make plays. It's, I mean, he's pretty special. Yeah, that's incredible. You know what? And, and so this is this. It's amazing how baseball works. So Arenado, that's a great call sliding us over to third base, Gilly. So he went to El Toro High School in SoCal. I think he was teammates with Matt Chapman. They both went to El Toro, and I think they overlapped. Their coach, Mike Gonzalez. I hope Gonzo is still there. Great, great dude. And then the Romines are also from that high school. And Andrew Romines, one of the best defensive shortstops I've seen in person. So. Yeah, Arenado. Those, those are all three of those kids or men, I guess. Special, mm-hmm. special hands. It, just like the transfer, just makes it so easy. Really good call. All right, let's, let's keep going, boys. This is good. Crib, let's do. Give me three core principles. So you can only. I'm one of your infielders. I've got my attention span is what it is. I'm 18 to 22 years old. So you can only singe three things into my brain. What are your three core principles? What I really would want to tell them is number one, feet, number mm-hmm. two, feet, and number three, feet. Yes. Uh, but that's that's kind of the, you get my point there. But no, once once we get rolling a little bit, number one, I would say is body control at all speeds mm-hmm. across the diamond. So laterally coming in, drop step, just be where your feet are and just have that body control, whether you got a sub four second guy running down the line. Or, so body control is big for us. Field and situational awareness. What's going on in the game? Be prepared mentally on that front. Nobody on, two outs. We got a non-threat in the plate as far as a runner goes. First and third, bunt situation, one out, game's on the line. And just kind of run that play through your head before you get to baseball. And then... The last one, breathing and self-talk in between every pitch. Hitters, as you see them, I remember playing Texas Texas A&M last year, and gosh, those guys would step out of the box and take probably five to seven seconds each pitch to take a deep breath, center themselves, get back in, let's go. Probably the most, like, 
people get out and take a breath. I get it, but very, very pronounced there. And so I translate that to the infield as well. I don't want you focused for three hours if you're playing this whole game. I really don't. I want you to clear your head, take a step away. We kind of use the analogy of a hula hoop. Step into the hula hoop when it's time to go, check in. But after that pitch, step outside, clear your head, have positive self-talk. This ball's coming to me. This ball's coming to me. I'm getting the out and just trust your actions. I listened to Derek Jeter the other day talk about the self-talk and relating it to golf. When you get up to the tee box and you're the, you do the last thing that you talk about, don't go left. Don't shake it left. Don't shake it left. Don't shake it left. And guess what you do? You pull it left. And basically, be positive with it. I'm going to get this ball. I'm going to field it cleanly and I'm going to make a good throw. And on the most simplest terms, you want to pick the ball up and put it in your glove. You want to take it out of your glove and you want to get it to the base before the other guy gets there. But to be more descriptive, yeah, body control, awareness, and breathing and self-talk. Love it. Very cool. Go ahead, Winnie. Yeah, our first couple of rules that we have with with obviously the Zag infielders is we, we don't want we want the palm to stay to the baseball at all times, and then we want our hands. So that's number one. Number two would be our hands to stay apart before we feel this is just so in, in in our our take if we're making a movement to catch the baseball and bringing our hands together or, or tapping we're making a, a movement down towards the baseball and if the baseball takes a different different hop or different direction then we're late to reacting to it what we're trying to do is give ourselves the put ourselves in the best position to catch the baseball as well as the position to react to a certain hop yeah hands 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 apart palm to the ball the third thing would probably be speed of the speed of the baseball and speed of the runner we how hard does that ball hit to us? time do we have to to be able to catch it and and react i know i tell our guys all the time we recruited you we know you can play catch i think if we put you in the best spot to catch the baseball you're going to play catch 98 percent of the time across the diamonds we're going to focus on putting you in the best spot to catch the ball regardless of of what it is I love that. That changed my life as an infield coach, starting to talk to players about it doesn't, the, the ball does not, like double plays especially, the ball does not have to be at first base in 3.2 seconds. That's not, <laughs> we don't get an extra out for that. It needs to be over there in 4.1, 4.2, maybe less. So let's just, to use Cribs command, let, let's just take a breath. Does not have to be Tasmanian devil when we're turning two. I right. love that. Deck, go ahead. Give me three core principles. Right. I think the, the first one and then the, the, the other ones kind of stem off it is you know, we just talk a lot about just protecting the baseball at all times. And that starts in our catch play and everything we do in practice. And hopefully with that kind of diligent focus to doing that, that translates over to the game. And then that leads into our, our guys tend to like tend to make plays a little bit more challenging than they need to be. So it's make the routine play and don't make a play harder than it needs to be. We just, we're in the business of collecting outs in the infield. And then the third thing, which I think differs a little bit from, from crib is I like our guys to be really focused all the time. We do checking in. Yes, of course, positive self-talk, but we do a lot of different shifting. And so we want guys focusing the dugout in between pitches and also kind of focus on what's going around going on around them in the infield. Our shortstop does a really good job of not only, not only positioning himself based off his card, but also making sure that everybody else is, is is where they need to be. And then kind of the fourth thing is you know, make sure we're relaying positive energy out there all the time, picking that pitcher up because all eyes are on him and I guess positive self-talk towards him and positive encouragement to give him the confidence he needs to attack the hitter and execute the pitch plan sort of thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I am, if you're an infielder that is very quiet and your body language is mediocre to below, I really struggle with that player. Like that's just, yeah, that that's, I'm with you like that. The infielders, they, they got to have a good vibe. So that, that's good stuff. Gilly, go ahead. Give me three core principles of infield play for you. Yeah, number number one would be feet for sure. And and that, that like I said, with, I know Craig had mentioned it. And like I spoke on with with Arenado, I mean, he has incredible feet. A lot of people talk about his arm and his hands, but he has incredible feet. And, and you can typically get the hop you want by moving your feet. So we do a lot of drills like with with ladders. I like ladders for most positions, but we have a lot of uh, drills that we'll use and put the ladder on an angle and and they'll come out of the ladder fielding the ground ball if there's a backhand or a forehand or you get a ball call in the middle of the ladder and they got to come and get it attack it hard and those kind of things. And I, I think the feet you can you can have you can have bad hands 
and get away with good feet more so than the other way around. And now if you got both, that's that's better, right? But just, just so we work on our feet quite a bit. So that'd be number one. Number two, just the ability to throw the ball straight. And it sounds easy, but it's a little harder to do. As the, the panel knows, nothing more frustrating than a, a guy doing all the work, working hard, getting the ball in his glove, and then he sails one into the second row. And for us, we spend a lot of time throwing the ball to bases. We spend a lot of time in our catch play. We extend our catch play. We have different styles of catch play as well. So in our practice plans, we have four different styles of catch play to try to create different throws, different angles. And in our practice plan, we, we have the type of throwing we're doing that day, but then we'll have it's funny because the, the guys they, they give me they give me a lot of crap for it. They, it's handle the ball. It's the most important thing we do, and it says it on every practice plan for the last nine years, right? And it's just, but that's how important it is, just to, to handle the ball and the ability to have true spin on it and throw it straight. And it has to you have to work on, and you, you get those throws in practice. Those would be the first two, and the third one you just kind of touched on would be energy for me. I, I'm kind of an energy guy. I like energy. I like to recruit energy. I think if you're going to be an infielder, your position dictates that you have some energy and 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 get after it. quick movers twitchy movers and 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 so those are the guys that kind of out of my eyes drawn to in the recruiting process and then also when we're we're on the field even for the opposing teams the guys that you man that guy's that guy's pretty twitchy he's pretty quick you look at his feet he throws the ball straight if you put all those together it's probably a, a pretty good infielder I love it. And number two is going to be a great segue. We're going to talk about throwing in a second here, Gilly. Hey, let me uh, let me ask you a question about the ladder drill. So I'm picturing kind of one of those rope ladders, and yep. are you just forcing the infielder like they can't touch the rope? They've got to stay in in the middle of it. Is that how it works? Yeah, and you can you can draw squares in the dirt, right? If you don't have a ladder, you can do it that way or or wherever you're doing it. And so I like it for all positions. But yeah, so we, we put it usually on an angle, and and uh, there's a million different. Uh, footwork agility drills to get through the ladder. So it's working on your footwork and your explosiveness and those kind of things. And then when you get out the other side, we're either forehand or backhand. And then if you have a ball call in the middle of the ladder, that's when it's going to break out and, and come attack the ball in, and, which is kind of a lost art, I think, too. I think a lot of people think range mostly is left to right and, and those kind of things. But I don't know, at least in our league, they're junior college guys, it's a wood bat. So there's a lot of those like choppers, three hoppers, you got to tack the ball in. That seems to be a separator. The guys that can come get the baseball and throw it on the run and those kind of things. So yeah, that's kind of how that drill works. So yeah. Love it. Hey, so boys and Gilly, you kind of led me into this. So I'll, you started the answer, but we'll, we'll, you, I'll have you expand on it as we come around the horn. And I'm going to come to you first, Crib. So the question is throwing, right? Like, I always think of Ed Service. I think he's one of the best infield guys in the country. He's the head coach at Creighton. If you look at it, Creighton fields 975 to 980 every year in Omaha, Nebraska, where they're playing in basically blizzard conditions half the year or on the road on a field they're not used to. And like the ball, they're playing on grass. They don't have turf. So they're playing at at, at the Schwab. And uh, it, it's, but Ed Service talk, he does a lot about throwing. I've learned a lot about coaching. Cause I think we've all had infielders where you're like, dang it, if you just threw accurately, you would be an incredible player. And by the way, Gilly, you and I watched Grand Canyon last week and Jacob Wilson, who's Jack's son right now, he's going to be a top five pick out of Grand Canyon. This kid is a throwback. Like he throws so accurately it's amazing it's it's like a work of art it's incredible how accurately he throws so my question coming around to you crib is how do we help a good player be a more confident more accurate thrower starts in catch play 100 mm -hmm. and and gilly touched on it we have most multiple arm slots and, and angles and whatnot that we go through in our routine as well and probably the, the biggest thing that holistically speaking is just the intent behind it. Skill work is through the roof these days and drills and drills and drills and drills. It's it's endless on what you can do. But so it starts in catch play and the intent behind that. And then next would be just the arm slot. And it just it's repetitions, Mike. There's there's no way to cheat the work. And in theory, if you get to that arm slot, I don't I don't uniform the arm slot for every single infielder. Everyone has a little bit different of a, a spot they like to get to, but I, I will make it mandatory of, hey, whatever slot you're comfortable with, it needs to get there every single time. And again, that does start in catch play because in theory, if you get to that slot every single time, they should be out. So the elite throwers of the world, football, for example, I mean, the, the Peyton Mannings, the Tom Brady's, when they get back and they get to that slot, that ball is arguably going to where it needs to go just simply by being in that uniform slot because it's happened over and over and over and over again. And 
the next thing after the arm slot is for the routine play, the throw needs to be uphill. We do not come up top. Really, the only time we go there is if we got to get something behind it, ball in the gap, get on top of the baseball and, and throw a bit of a laser. But that routine baseball, I do want them to, to throw uphill with it. And after that, we, we do a lot of skill work, of course, but I have a saying, I, skills are cheap and passion is priceless. And a lot of these wins come from the sheer will and the sheer passion and the love for the game to get that first out of the game, which may seem little and not as much, or get that 27th out and you're going to Omaha. Who knows? I don't, we do a lot of skill work. We do pad work. We do training glove work. We do progressions and all that, but the the Fordham guys from last year and the St. Peter's guys this year, if there's one thing about me, it's just there is an, a staggering amount of intent and pressure and creating an environment when nobody's really walking, watching and it's just us out there. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, intent is, yeah, yeah I'm with you. Love that. Winnie, go ahead. How do you help me? How do, how, how do you help somebody be a better thrower? Yeah, I think our focus is obviously we, we're, we're playing catch every day. We're throwing from different arm slots. A big thing that we throw out at our program is I think the big league average in terms of missed throw is like 3.4 feet, which is within, if you're talking about a first baseman striding to catch the baseball, that's within his catch radius. We, we worry about trying to throw the baseball within that three feet of somebody's chat. And so I, th I think kind of relating it to the big league guys and saying, oh, this was not, this wasn't my best throw. It kind of took them off the base a little bit. Putting in that, that three, three foot window is I think good for those guys. Cause they're, they're looking at the big league guys, obviously that play elite catch and thinking, okay, if that's that average, then, then we're, if I can be within that, that's, that's a plus for, for the Zags, I think in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. Love that. Love that analogy. I, 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 coaching third baseman who can really get mental about throwing. I, I remember talking to them a lot about almost like being an NFL quarterback. Don't throw him a hospital ball, please get the ball to your receiver and let him work. Right. Like we don't, it doesn't need to be a perfect throw late. Any throw early is, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. That That's good stuff. Yeah. Winnie deck, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to, at least in my mind is like kind of develop and feel. I think, I think Gilly, you, you mentioned this in terms of throwing the ball straight. We'll, we'll get a clean fuego, which is a pitching tool just to kind of have infielders develop that feel for backspin the ball and then just keeping the rotation tight. And I've done stuff before when I was at Harvard, you know, I just had guys play catcher those, those pancake gloves all the time. And I thought it was kind of twofold so that, if, you know, you got to deliver a catchable ball and within that kind of three foot window that Winnie was just talking about. And if you don't take something off and kind of develop feel for that, and if you don't, you're just trying to rock at the ball, they want to play and fetch all the time, prioritizing being accurate. And then kind of as we transition into ground balls, I think developing that internal clock. And I bought a, an LED stopwatch just so we can kind of simulate a runner down running down the line all the time. I think developing that feel for a guy running down the line and you know how quick you got to be, I think that goes into that feel and simulating that game-like atmosphere as much as you can in practice kind of tr hopefully transitions into the game a little bit. Hey, Deck, you, you, what was that you referenced at Clean Fuego? Is that like a device or a tool or is it a ball with, with the stripes so you can see the backspin or what was – was that an expression or is that an actual thing? No, it's a thing and it's like a – it's like a baseball and you kind of cut off like the round sides of it. It's a pitching ah. tool, but you can, you can, it's, it's a new way of doing like the drawing a ball, drawing a line on a ball sort of thing. Yeah. You can kind of just see the rotation, whether it's hovering or if it's just you know, spinning kind of straight. Great I like marketing it a lot. too. Who doesn't want a clean fuego, right? Like it's well done. <laughs> nah, they're, Business they're lesson and, here too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, that's good. Really cool. Go ahead, Gilly. Expand. You, you had touched on it, but go ahead. Expand on this. How do you help me be a better thrower? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to just our, our infield foundation, right? Anyone, any of our guys who have a, a throwing problem, usually we start with their feet as well. And the more repeatable we can make their feet, usually the more accurate the thrower, usually. And we work hard and, and on working on their on their feet, getting their feet lined up. Now, their feet isn't the only important thing in, in throwing the ball accurate, because obviously sometimes you're going to throw on the run and those kind of things. But trying to make the routine plays as repeatable as possible helps for sure. The other thing that we do is we, we throw a lot. 
And, and, uh, and I think that's important to, obviously that, that goes with arm care and, and band work for even for the infielders and those kind of things, which we do. And if we're going to ask them to throw that much, they need to take care of their arm. And, and it starts with catch play, like the rest of the guys said, and, and, but also just in, in practice, very rarely do we shag them and bag them, right? Like just field and drop. And we're always, we're always throwing across, we're always throwing double plays. We're, we're, we're doing these, these, these throws that will be made in the game. And number one, to identify if there is a problem that we need to correct. And two, just so there's some repeatability in in what we're doing and just you you just keep repping it out and repping it out so taking batting practice right you're just going to keep doing it and keep doing it and just feel your swing and and so we do the same thing with our throwing you just you can feel your arm and and feel the way it moves and those kind of things and i don't know the, the last thing that that kind of that that will help the the throws that gets missed sometimes is is the receiver too and they think of like double plays and I, I agree with crib on the ball the ball traveling up especially on double plays and those kind of things and if, if a ball's thigh high, right? It might be too low, but if the, if the receiver drops his waistline a little bit, all of a sudden that thigh high throw is, is right at his belly button, right? And now all of a sudden he turned a bad throw into a good throw just because of the receiver did his job. And we work a little bit on that too, on, on the receivers being active and moving their feet, whether it's first baseman or the, or the, the middle guys doing their double plays and those kind of things. Yeah. I think again, though, I think it starts with your feet. Then it goes back to just repping it out a lot, making a lot of throws. So you're able to feel your body and just have some 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 court awareness on on what's going on there as far as your body how it works and then and then the receiver uh, the, the, on the other end of the throw has some responsibility too. Mm, love it. That's good stuff. Four good answers there. All right, maybe my most controversial question, boys. As a former infield coach, I really struggled with backhands. Here's why I struggle with it. I think it's a lower percentage catch that is also a lower percentage throw. So both parts of the play are lower percentage than if I can work my left foot around the baseball and gain momentum to first base. So I ended up at, at, at the end of my career as an infield coach, like almost never practicing backhand, really talking to our guys about that's a parachute. Like you don't need to practice. That's going to be just a smash to your right. And you're going to react and be an athlete because I, I just I wanted singed in their brains that you're a great athlete and you can get your left foot around almost any baseball and be in a much better position to make a play. But then Andy Stankiewicz followed me at Arizona State and he was completely different. I, here was my theory. I thought I couldn't get them enough backhand repetitions to get them good enough that we could we would feel confident with a backhand play with our season on the line. And then Stank and, and our, our infielders did great, right? I was proud of our infielders. And then Stanky comes in and and he's really preaching like he's preaching the whole thing. And their infielders, his infielders were great. And I think Stanky's one of the best infield guys in America at any level. But I still struggle to get past that I'm coaching a kid because you know what happens, guys. The kids just start defaulting to backhand, right? Because it's easier. I don't have to move my feet as much. And I'm defaulting to a, a lower percentage catch and a lower percentage throw. So what I'm asking you guys is how do I find that middle ground where I'm not giving in to lazy feet, but at the same time, I don't have them ill-prepared for a, a difficult play. So I'm, this is kind of a therapy session. Give me some therapy on the backhand play. Go ahead, Crib. Great question. And my answer to that would be, first and foremost, just communicate with that specific infielder have a have a conversation about hey here's what i think or do you think that you are simply able to do this what are you more comfortable with here's what i've had success with in the past at whether it's other programs or or what and tell me what you think have some empathy there and understand what maybe that athlete would prefer to do and if he has a an answer that may not be in line with yours hey you maybe let him run with it a little bit in the fall and if it works out great i don't want to overcoach this this may work for you, but what I prefer, we, we talk a lot about trusting the one hands these days. Don't be afraid to one hand glove side or the one hand backhand, but also I will typically say, don't rely on your glove, rely on your feet. And if you can use your feet well enough to comfortably get to that backhand spot, keep your body under you, plant, throw, Depending on the runner, if you have enough time to create the angle and throw an uphill throw across, great. But back to the repetition side of things, I am, to answer your question, I'm comfortable using a one-hand backhand and then planting the feet and making a throw. There's some variables there, of course, but I'm not preaching don't backhand, get around it, get the front foot through, and use a one-hand coming through, per se. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have found just with 
the strength of the player nowadays, pitching velocity, the bats, the strength of the guy swinging it, exit velocity, everyone's preaching, hit the ball hard, hit the ball hard, hit the ball hard. These balls are coming hot, to be blunt. And I think the game nowadays, it's it's a thing of, of one-handed fielding. If it's right at you, of course, it's two hands come to center, and we're not getting away from that by any means. But I do tell them, hey, we want to get to the point where you can trust the one hand. And that's mm-hmm. glove side and both backhand. Yeah. And if that particular guy isn't comfortable with it, then, hey, we'll we'll work on something specifically to get around it. Yep, that's a good answer. No, very good. Go ahead, Winnie. Wait, how, how would you – yeah, talk me through this. I, I think I'll start just by saying I'm a big fan of the backhand. We we kind of look at it two ways at GU of you're catching a backhand either inside your body or outside your body. We want to put your – we want to put our infielders in the best possible position to catch the ball. So if it's a backhand, then then – then we're there. Our focus is is thumb down with with both those. So if, you, if you're going inside your body, essentially it's to me the easiest way to explain it is like a shortstop kind of coming in on a, a slower paced ball where you're cutting kind of some distance, but you're catching the baseball inside with the angle going towards first. Outside your body would be more of the range play where you're reaching outside your left foot to catch the baseball. And so we we practice both those every day. I think when we looked at it, 30% of, I think, our infield errors were kind of on the borderline play where our guys were trying to fight around the baseball. Like as everybody, you guys were talking about left foot forward and, and kind of getting the left foot around it, 30% of our errors were made with that movement. So instead of us kind of trying to fight around it, we've let our infielders kind of have some freedom of allowing the, the backhand to to play. I do think it frees you up and it, it allows you to kind of make adjustment on, on, on hops, whether it's short, whether it's long, whatever it might be. It just, it allows some, some freedom for that infielder as long as he's in a good position to throw the baseball to, to the base. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's the counter to my argument. Like I just, I perceive backhand as being low percentage on both sides of it, but you could also argue that that, that play that you get kind of caught in between, you're trying to work around it. You, you could turn that into a lower percentage play. So very, very fair answers. Go ahead, Deck. What's your take on the back end? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely crucial, especially if you're going to play the left side of the infield. And I think, Runes, you kind of describe it as kind of lazy footwork in like your initial description I, in terms of just you know, flipping your, your hips over. I look at it as that's the most efficient footwork for completing the back end of the play. You feel the ball and your shoulders are aligned, your feet are aligned. It's making it's making a play easier in my mind. And I think guys that are players that struggle with backhands are probably the ones that lack confidence in it, where instead of just trying to backhand a ball, they, they force themselves to try to swing their the right foot around it and feel the ball with two hands and that might lead them to, to pop it up and then then they sail a throw. So I think it's crucial to establish that confidence in it with our drill work and practice. And there there's sometimes where we'll go backhand only I hit and I'll hit a ball to their their glove side. So they have to flip their hips around and just to show them, hey, you can do this. You can hit the ball anywhere and, and do it. But I think it's crucial and Crip Crip talked about feeling the ball with one hand and I completely agree. I kind of give the analogy that feeling Feeling the ball with two hands at the Division One level—that's like putting rims on or spinners on a, on a on a nice car. You don't necessarily need to do it, but sometimes it looks good. And I guess I'm kind of contradicting myself to what I said earlier about making plays look easy. Practicing, you know, practicing you know, with just have—we do a ball in a hand, so they can only feel the ball with one hand all the time, and we're hitting the balls to the left and the right. Just that confidence stuff. So when it's in a game, you can feel it. But I think if you're not gonna if you struggle with a backhand or lack confidence in the backhand, good luck playing the left side of the infield because you're probably going to play second base or first base, at least in my mind. Yeah, and it's fair. Like one hand, I'm with you. One hand is just more athletic. You just you have so much more freedom athletically. So, Gilly, go ahead. Talk, talk, talk to me about the backhand. Yeah, I think sometimes it, it puts you in a, a good direction to throw, actually, I think. Sometimes when you're working so hard to get that left foot around and work, it, it kind of puts some guys into a, I wouldn't say out of control, but they're, they're at a high pace because they're working so hard to try to get around that 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 ball on their on their left side. And sometimes it, it, it'll allow the guys to, I don't know, I know some of their guys said freedom and whatnot, but if you if you can get inside the ball and rake through it, you're in a pretty good position to throw to first base if you're on the on the left side. And if you if it takes you deep in the six hole, if you're a shortstop and you can just stick that right foot either in one or three steps, bang, 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 you're typically in a pretty good position to throw there too. The backhand, I think typically takes a little bit more arm strength because 
you're not working so hard to get around the ball. So the runner's moving a little bit. You're usually a little bit deeper at a, at a deeper angle, but I'm kind of a believer in the backhand too. Now, if you can get around a ball, I'm all for it. I, I like that, but but I wouldn't describe it as last resort or anything like that. So for, for me too, I like a little bit of, 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 of wrist roll in our backhand. So like when a ball's in front of us, pushing our wrist out just a hair or when we're receiving it, right, we roll it back just a hair. And so I think the glove presentation for us there is the pocket is shown to the ball longer. And because typically when you boot a ball on a backhand, it's on your palm, right? Like it's just right, like you're right on it. And you feel like, man, shoot, I, I was right on that. And you were, you were right on it. It just, the, the way you present your glove needs to just, you got to roll that back a hair if it's getting deep on you or push it out just a hair. Not not extreme either way, but I, I call it a little bit of a wrist roll one way or another. And, and I think that allows you to backhand balls a little bit better. Love it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's, that was good. I was excited to ask that question. Those were all really good answers. I still am struggling with the backhand. You guys could probably tell. That said, I'm a retired coach, so it's all good. There's I'm not ruining anybody at this point. Hey, uh, boys, one final question. Let's do a little bit of a lightning round here. Crib, coming back to you. You can only listen to one infield play clinician. So you get to pick the the the, the top infield clinician at, in Nashville this year. Who would you choose? So we'll go around the horn. You can only listen to one guy talk infield play. Who are you listening to? University of Puget Sound alum Kai Correa with the Giants right now. So got to incredible. Got to go with him. Absolutely. Yep. Very and I cool. think it's more like just the way that he speaks, and it's it's one thing to to teach, but. Just the ability to understand somebody and what they're saying, I feel like is just is monumental. And even for being a pro guy and an instructor, you can watch his videos and just simply understand what he is conveying to a big leaguer all the way down to a 12U guy. He just he speaks very well. He's very intelligent, very articulate in his words. And you're just simply able to pass it along to your guys. Yeah, Kai's amazing. Yep, no doubt. Good, good call. Good, good starter right there. Go ahead, Winnie. Yeah, I I think Kai obviously at the top of the list. No 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 doubt being a Northwest guy. Stankowitz would be at the top of my list too. Just in terms of he's he's somebody he got the job at at Grand Canyon when I was at Paradise Valley. That's I've leaned on a little bit in terms of how he how he coaches how he how he works with the infielders. Whether or not he's speaking, I'm not sure, but he he would be a guy at the top of my list for sure to to meet up with. Yeah, watching Stanky work with his infielders is fun. It's really, really fun. Yeah, two two really good answers. Go ahead, Deck. I feel bad because I'm an East Coast guy, but I'm going to say a West. I'm going to continue on the West Coast train, and there's a lot of good East Coast guys. But Nate Trotsky is my answer. Ah, uh, Nate's nice. awesome. Yeah, but Kai, but, but Kai, I haven't met Coach Stankowitz. But I I haven't met Kai either. But I I obviously watch all those those videos yep. on YouTube that he puts out there. Yep. Three very passionate infield guys. Very good. Gilly, go ahead. It's funny. I, so I recruited Kai to University of Puget Sound. So his freshman year, I was, I was the coach at, at University nice. of Puget Sound. I was his infield coach and now he's the guru. So, so that's, so it's fun to watch his growth and whatnot. And, and he surely, he passed us all up and those kind of things. But it's fun to kind of watch him go, go down the line and just his arrows pointing through the roof. Pretty, pretty cool deal. I would, I would, without echoing everybody else, I would I would keep mine in house. We at Central we have our own infield coach, and I know I'm on the infield panel, but we have our coach Joe Perez, which which does an unbelievable job. Yes, um, and just his ability to work and work with with guys and form relationships and 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 speak it in words that that the players understand. I I just I I, I got to keep it in house. I mean, I, I see him work every day, and, and and if I still had an opportunity to go watch him speak, I would do it. And that's what I've seen him every day. I think he does an outstanding job, and he's got a bright future for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. How about the University of Puget Sound in the house tonight? Like all over. Hot, what is it, hot what's, today. What's the UPS hot, nickname? Up, baby. What, what is, what's the nickname? What's the mascot? The Loggers. The Loggers. Oh, that's great. Oh, even better. Very cool. Gentlemen, we've been going an hour. This has been awesome. So fun. I knew this was going to be a blast. Let's wrap it right there. Great job, you guys. That was that was a really, really fun conversation. want to say thanks again to our friends at Netting Pros. These guys are just incredible. Encourage everyone to check them out, to support them, and appreciate their support of this show. We will not be here next Sunday because of Thanksgiving, but we'll be back on December 4th, so two Sundays from tonight. We will take another crack at pitching. We'll have another pitching development talk, and then we'll keep going on these Sunday night call. So that is it. Everybody have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving. And we will see you in two weeks. Have a great night. We'll see you guys. Thanks, Thanks Rance. Thanks, Thanks, you, Rance. Thanks, Rance.